0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to the book of Job. The book of Job, it's right before Psalms. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black pew Bible in the chair in front of you, under the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 440 in that pew Bible, if you like. I'm going to be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, so if you want to follow the exact wording, you can use that. If you want to use your own translation, I'm sure it's not going to be too different from what I'm using anyways. So the book of Job, spelled like the word job, but it's pronounced Job. For the sake of saving time a little bit in an overview of the whole book, instead of telling the story of one and two for my scripture, I'm actually going to read one and two and then just give a brief Uh, summary of it later, but I'm going to read all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 out loud here. So hear then the word of the Lord. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day... The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, "'Where have you come from?' "'From roaming through the earth,' Satan answered him, "'and walking around on it.' Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil.' "'Satan,' answered the Lord, "'Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing?' Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another report reported the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. When he was still speaking, or he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. One day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, He is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of bone pottery, a broken pottery, to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. When they looked from, or when they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept. Aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust on into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him, because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Father, we pray that you would prepare us here to suffer. For those of us here who are not suffering right now, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to suffer. Give us a powerful biblical gospel word that would be planted deep in our hearts and bear fruit for the months and days and years and decades to come if you will tarry and if you keep us on earth. For those of us who are suffering right now, for those of us in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the overwhelming brokenness, we pray for grace. We pray that truth spoken here would not come like a hammer, but that it would come like a bomb, healing and comforting and strengthening. So, Father, only you can do this. So lead us to repentance, lead us to faith, lead us to see the glory of Christ and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're continuing our overview sermon series on some of the uh, early prophets or the writings, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. And so we did an overview of Proverbs last time I was here preaching, and so this week we are doing an overview of Job. And so talking about Proverbs and now talking about Job, we are talking about the subject of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of God and knowledge of this world applied to the created order that God has set up and designed. So God made an order in this world. All of the reality, people, places, things, and God himself is reality. They're all here in reality. And you either live in line with that reality, with wisdom, that's wisdom, or you try to buck against reality with your own beliefs that are not revealed, that are not according to God's word, or your own practices, even though you might believe God's word, you don't practice according to God's word, and so you, you push up against God's reality. That is what the Bible calls foolishness trying to make up your own wisdom in how you think it's best to live life in this world and you bump up against reality like running into a wall again and again and again. So last week, or two weeks ago now, when I preached on Proverbs, we learned about the perception of order, that God made this world with order, that you reap what you sow. And if you do well, if you work hard, you make money. And if you're lazy, you don't, or, or different things like that. It's the perception of order. But... We learn from Job that you can't always perceive order. You can't always see things and make a one-to-one connection. The world is more complex than just a simple one plus one equals two, and that's what we learn here in the story of Job. So going back to chapter one in the in story, in Job um, chapter one, so, so he, we have here a, um, a deal that goes on between Satan and God. And so we ask the question, why does God allow Suffering. Why does God allow a deal to be made between Satan and God? I mean, did he have to make this deal? Like, I mean, he didn't have to. He ordains the sufferings. He's going to cause these sufferings, and yet um, he didn't have to make this deal. Why did God make it? So, Satan's roaming around in heaven, and then he says, hey, um, look at my servant Job. It's almost like God is the one provoking Satan, Right? I mean, if you were Job now, couldn't you say, like, if you're in heaven now, you know, like, Job, like, God, couldn't you have not just mentioned me to Satan? Wouldn't that be, you know, like, did you really have to, like, mention me? Um, There's a lot of other people following you, you know? Um, So it's like God kind of brings it on, and Satan bites the bait. And he says the only reason he worships you and trusts you and the only reason he's faithful to you is because you give him all these gifts. Take all his gifts away, and he'll curse you. And so God wants to prove to Satan I am lovable. I am valuable. I am Job's treasure, not because of the gifts I give him, but because I am his greatest gift. Amen. It's not the glory of the gifts that makes Job love me. It's that I am glorious. And I, and I will prove it to you through you taking away his things. And then he takes away the things. Does Job curse God? No. He blesses God. we just saying, blessed be your name. He blesses God. And so then Satan says, well, t- you know, touch his body. He's fully healthy, so yeah, he took everything around him, but not his body. Touch his body, and then he'll curse you. So he does that, and does Job curse God? His wife even says, curse God, and Job does not. He actually rebukes his wife and says, you speak like one of the foolish women, and does not give in to her temptation. Even, so you have Satan even using his wife to get Job to sin. And Job still does not sin with his mouth. Well, one of my questions when I was reading Job this week and preparing for the sermon, I thought, is God sort of petty here? I mean, who is God trying to prove himself to? To Satan. Does God really need to prove himself to Satan? I mean, if I'm Job, I'm like, God, did you, do you really have to do that? I mean, you know you're glorious. You knew what was going to happen. Why do you have to do that? I mean, don't you know, God, that you're valuable? It's not like God is insecure, Right? I'm not sure if I'm valuable. I need, a, I need some affirmation from Job to, to prove my worth. Is Job, I mean, is God like a petty, overly sensitive child who constantly needs to shut up everyone who mocks him? You know when kids do that, right? Um, there's a famous NBA player today who responds to everyone who criticizes him online on social media, and, and people are saying, he's so overly sensitive, and he's like, no, I'm not, you know? And he has to, like, answer, he has to answer everyone's critique of him. It's like, you don't have to prove yourself to people. You know, and here's God almost like I have to prove myself to Satan. Is, is God being immature here and just kind of playing with Job's life and Job's pain and Job's suffering to prove that he is glorious? Brothers and sisters, God is not petty. God is not immature. God, and if you're not a Christian, you might say, yeah, it just seems like God is being immature. Well, God has a bigger purpose that's universally important. He wants to show that Job is part of his plan and part of the bigger picture. And God wants to show us through reading Job that we too are part of God's plan and bigger picture in this broken world. So there is a reason for it, and we'll get to it as we unfold the book. All right, so you are a Christian here. Most of you are Christians, and you have a desire to fear God and finish life well, to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. The problem for us Christians is that we suffer in this world. There's brokenness, bereavement, the loss of a loved one to death, sickness, Our own coming death, financial loss, relationships falling apart, disabilities, oppression, abuse, shame and rejection, weakness, loneliness, and just general pain. Life hurts, life is hard. Not only do we have these things on the outside that are attacking us and making us feel the brokenness of this world and the curse of this world, we have the internal brokenness. How do we respond to the outside brokenness? We feel, we feel fear for the pain, right? We're scared. We're scared of the pain. We're, we, we, we fear that our faith might fail or that we'll doubt God's goodness or his wisdom or his power. And sometimes this fear inside is harder than the pain on the outside, right? Right? It's the pain here and here that hurts even more. And we're overwhelmed by this fear and by the struggle. I feel this fear. When when I was newly married, um, sometimes I would just get into this funk where I just feel so discouraged and despondent. And then my wife would be like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm in a season of life right now where all my loved ones are still alive, but that's not gonna last that long. And I wanna soak it up, but you know, all, everyone in my life is still alive right now, but that's not always going to be the case. It's because yo- we're young. And so I just kind of get into these funks of like feeling the fear of the future, knowing that if I live long enough, it's, it's going to come of it in- inevitably, right? I feel that fear. Some of you are in that fear currently. Job has experienced this fear as we just read. He lost seven sons and three daughters in one day. And so here God has a word for us. The main point of Job, let me tell you the main point of Job, The main goal of this sermon and the main goal of this text is this, when you're overwhelmed by disorder, trust God's good wisdom beyond your current understanding so that you endure for the final reward. That's a long sentence. I'll give you the highlight. Let me read the long sentence one more time and I'll point out the main point, like the, the thing I want you to remember. When you're overwhelmed by the disorder and brokenness of this world, trust God's goodness and wisdom that is beyond your current understanding. So that you endure for the reward. So the point here is when you're overwhelmed, trust God's good wisdom when you don't understand. That's the main point. That's the main idea. And you have to endure to the end. The reason why I think this is the main point of the book of Job is not because of just my reading of Job, but James 5, 10, and 11 says this. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed the one who has endured. You have heard of Job's endurance. Job, you have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about since the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here's the application. Endure to the end your trials even when you don't understand what's going on in your life when you're overwhelmed because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's merciful Amen. even when you don't understand. Okay, and so, we, so we told the story about the beginning with Satan and God and Job. Job loses all these things. He lost everything in his life. most of his loved ones, okay? And then Job 3, I'll give you the overview of the book now. In Job 3, Job cries out and curses the day of his birth. He wishes he was never born. Then in Job 4 through 31, Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three friends, his three closest friends, come and visit him, and they start comforting him and encouraging him or rebuking him. And so One speaks, Job responds. The second one speaks, Job responds. The third one speaks, Job responds. That goes for three rounds. Actually, more like two and a half rounds because the last round isn't completed. But you have three rounds of everyone versus Job in conversation, okay? In chapters 32 to 37, you have this sneak peek. There's another character there who you didn't know was there the whole time. His name is um, Elihu. Elihu pops out of nowhere, and he says... um, I'm mad at all of you. Job is wrong and everyone's wrong. And he starts rebuking everybody. And then after that, God finally comes. In 38 through 41, God gets his turn to speak. And he speaks for four chapters. Then after God speaks, Job responds in repentance and faith. He prays for his friends. They are restored. And then Job Job gets Everything restored. He gets double everything. Double the animals, double the wealth, double the, not double the children, but 10, <laughs> ten children again. So 10 children again, seven sons and three daughters again. And then the, the way it ends is he lives happily ever after. That's really the end of Job 42. All right, so that's a story. And in this story, I want to fly by the whole story and give you six ways to trust God's wisdom beyond your current understanding. Six ways to trust God beyond your current understanding. Now, ways three and four is the long one where we're going to go through long conversations. One and two is really short. Three and four is longer. Five and six is just kind of medium. Okay? So let's, let's jump right in. Six ways to trust God's wisdom when you don't understand. Here it is. Number one, trust God when you're overwhelmed by blessing God. So you do it by blessing God. How do you trust God when you're overwhelmed? By blessing God. And we, we, we read that already in, in Job 1, so we're not going to belabor the point. But when Job was, when everything was taken away, his wealth and his health, not his health, his wealth and his kids, instead of cursing God, he blessed God. So when you are in trial and you don't understand, praise God anyways. And if you feel weak like I feel weak, we're singing, blessed be your name. And it sounds a little bit, where's my program here? It sounds a little bit triumphalistic, just a little bit, where it says, um, um, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say. I feel too weak to sing it that way. So I always say, Lord, help me say, blessed be your name. Because I just don't know when, if I lose my five kids in one day and, and, and all that, all my possessions, like, can I say it? I don't know. I want to say it, but I feel so weak just thinking about it that I just say, Lord, help me say, blessed be your name. Amen. But that's the point, okay. When you are overwhelmed, trust God by blessing his name even when you don't understand. That's number one. Number two. Okay, we've got to move on. Number two. Trust God when you're overwhelmed by lamenting to God. Lamenting to God. In other words, you are sharing your pain. You're even sharing your complaints and you're crying out to God. So you don't complain against God in a corner or you complain to your friends or you complain to other people in your family. You complain straight to God. Go to him with it. That's what Job does in Job chapter 3. So look at chapter 3. Job complains, and I'm not going to read, but um, just the first verse, 3-1. When after this, Job began to speak, and what's the, just read the next word. Job began to speak and what? Curse, stop her there. You're like, uh-oh, who won? Satan said, "In the day you, you take this away, he will what? Curse you to your face. So then, he, so then his wife tells him, curse God. He tells his wife to, to be quiet, to not, she's speaking like a foolish woman. And then chapter 3, Job opens his mouth and begins to curse. And you're like, is he going to fail? But he doesn't curse God. What does he curse? Well, look at the verse. Finish the verse. He began to curse what? The day he was born. But he's lamenting to God. I can't curse you, God. I still trust you. I still love you. But I wish I was never born. It hurts so bad. Whoa. Is that me or should I switch microphones? Is it okay? No. We're switching microphones. It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. You mean you switch microphones or is this one okay? Um, mic two? You okay? All right. It hurts so bad that he wishes he was never born. He wishes he was dead even. And he's going to get through that. And some of you might have felt like that in the past. Some of you might be feeling that right now. Some of you will feel that in the future. But the exhortation to you is go to God with your pain, not away from him, not away from his people. Go to him and complain to him. That's number two. Those are the quick ones. Now we're going to go to the longer one because we're going to march through 4 through 31, this conversation. We're going to march through this conversation. So in preparation for points three and four... I'm going to walk through the conversation, and then at the end of walking through it, I'll, pu- I'll pull out both points. Okay, but we have got to march through the conversation here briefly. So for for three rounds, we learn a few. We learn two lessons here about trusting God when you're overwhelmed. So going to chapter four and follow with me. I'm going to be pulling some verses here as we go through round one of conversation. So Eliphaz speaks up first, and he says in verse seven and eight to Job, Job, consider who has perished when he was innocent. Where have the honest been destroyed? What is he saying? Who, who perishes? Those who are not what? Not, those, are not, those are not, read the word again. Consider who has perished when he was not what? Or when he was what? Innocent. So the only people who perish are those who are not? Innocent. innocent. And then continuing, where have the honest been destroyed? So who are the ones who get destroyed? The dishonest. So Job, if your kids died, guess what? They're probably what? Dishonest. dishonest. Job, you're going through suffering. You know why? You're probably a dishonest person. Wow. Go on to verse 8. And so he, he uses some, and what's, what's your authority, Eliphaz? Verse 8. In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. That sounds like Proverbs, right? You reap what you sow. The people who sow injustice, oppression, selfishness, they're the ones who reap the same. And so, Job, maybe you're just reaping what, you're, what you've sown, right? Go to chapter 5. In chapter 5, He says about the wicked person in verse 4, his children are far from safety. So your children probably weren't safe because they're far from safety. Look at verse 8. However, here's his advice, okay? Eliphaz says, Job, here's my advice to you. If I were you, Job, I would appeal to God and I would present my case to him. That's his advice. Go to God and, and tell him that you're innocent if you think you're innocent. In verse 17, but Eliphaz doesn't think Job's innocent because in verse 17 he says, see how happy is the person whom God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. So go to God, Job, and then he's gonna correct you. And when he corrects you, remember Proverbs, a, a wise person receives correction, right? He doesn't, he doesn't shut off from correction. We learned that two weeks ago. So Job, when you go to God and he corrects you, receive it because you're probably sinning somewhere. What's Job's response? Job's response in chapter six, look at verse two. If only my grief could be weighed and my devastation placed with it on the scales. I'm so, I'm, I'm greatly grieved, for then it would outweigh the sound of the seas. That is why my words are rash. I'm speaking like this because I'm hurting. If I'm hurting, I'm going to speak rash words. That doesn't mean I'm okay. it's okay, but you've got to understand, like I'm in deep pain. In verse 4, what's the pain? Surely the arrows of who? Of the Almighty have pierced me. So who's piercing Job according to Job? God is piercing Job. Job has good theology here. In verse 8, here's his request. If only my request would be granted and God would provide what I hope for, that, I, that he would decide to crush me and unleash his power and cut me off. If God would just kill me, then this pain would be gone. If he could just take me. In verse 24, he says to God now in his prayer, teach me, God, and I'll be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. I don't know what I did wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Not that I'm sinless. I'm not perfect. But I didn't do anything to deserve this. And so what does Job think the issue is in Verse 29. He says to God, reconsider, don't be unjust, reconsider. What's the issue verse 29? Whose righteousness? Job. Job's righteousness is the issue. He's, so Job is saying in his lament, my righteousness is the issue. Okay, now pause here. You already know Job 1 and 2. Job doesn't know Job 1 and 2, but you do. Is Job's righteousness the issue? Is that why he's suffering? What's the issue? God made a deal with who? The devil. The devil. It's not about, so Job is already He's not sinning. He's not cursing God, but he's kind of going down the wrong track with his thinking. It's beyond his understanding. He doesn't understand why he's suffering. He thinks, and they think, it's an issue of his righteousness. That's not the issue. But Job thinks it's the issue because this trial, again, is beyond his understanding. Go to Bildad. So next comes in Bildad, friend number two. What does Bildad say? Look at verse two, and he goes in right here. How long will you go on saying these things, Job? Your words are a blast of wind. Does God pervert justice? Does almighty pervert what is right? In other words, it's right that you're doing. This. God's not wrong. It's right that you're suffering. Verse 4, since your children sinned this is crazy. Since your children again re- against him, he gave them over to their what? Rebellion. So he's saying, "You know why your 10 kids died? Cuz they sinned against him." Do you know what sin? I don't know, but that's that's what God does, right? God punishes sinners. So the reason why your, your children died is because they have some sins. And so what does he say to Job? What's his advice? But if you, Job, earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and he'll restore the home where your righteousness dwells. Then even if your beginnings were modest, your final days will be full of prosperity. And how does Bildad know this? What's his authority? Eliphaz's authority was his experience. Bildad's authority, because he said, in my experience, this happens. Bildad says, you know why I know that it's for sure your kids have suffered because they sinned? Because that's what tradition says. Look at verse 8. For ask the previous generation and pay attention to what their fathers discovered. Since we were born only yesterday, we know nothing. Our days on earth are but a shadow. So in other words, the reason why I know that your children must have sinned is because tradition says so. That's the way it's always been. That's the way we've always been taught. That's the way it's always been. Tradition is what it is, that's why I know you're suffering the way you are because your children have sinned. Not the best encouragement, right? So how does Job respond in chapter nine? Job responds in verse two and he basically says, I know I can't stand before God in verses two through four, I can't do it. So what's Job's conclusion in verse 21 and 22? Job's conclusion: I can't stand before God even if I if I wanted to. Like I, I still have other sins in my life, and um, God is God. I'm just a creature. Like who could who am I to stand before Him? And so look at verse 21, 22. Here's Job's conclusion of his situation. Though I am blameless, I haven't sinned in any way that deserves this. I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. Here's his conclusion, verse 22. It is all the same. Therefore, I say, He destroys both who, the blameless and the wicked. So what's Job's conclusion? doesn't matter. You're blameless. You suffer. You're wicked. You suffer. They both suffer. That's Job's conclusion. Almost not. It's like, you know, um, it's like, what's the point? Suffer anyways. That's Job's conclusion. And so Job says, you know, I can't stand before God. So what does Job need? And this is a theme that I didn't realize before this most recent time studying Job. I saw this theme a lot more prominent. Job says, "I need a mediator. I need a mediator." And so, look at verse thirty-two. If I went to God, for He is He is not a man like me that I can answer Him, that we can take each other to court. I can't just prosecute God. There is no mediator between us to lay His hand on both of us. Let Him take His rod away from me, so His terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear Him. But that is not the case. I am on what? I am on my own. I don't have any mediator. There's God, the Almighty. Here's me, puny little human. I got no mediator to stand before him. If I could just get a mediator who could put his hand on both of us and mediate us, then I could talk to him without being scared. But I'm, of course it's God. I'm a man. Like I'm scared to, to go up against him. So verse, chapter 10, he basically asks, why is God oppressing me? Look at verse uh, 1. I am disgusted with my life. I will give vent to my complaint and speak bitter, the bitterness of my soul. And look at verse 2, I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. And here's this challenge to God. Let me know, God, why you prosecute me. God, is it good for you to oppress and reject the work of your hands and favor the plans of the wicked? Why am I suffering, God? Can you at least explain to me why I'm suffering? Can you let me know why? And Job very clearly says over and over again, like in verse 13, you concealed this, uh, these thoughts in your heart. I know that this was your hidden plan. So this was the plan of God. If I sin, you would notice and would not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. And even if I'm righteous, because I think I am righteous, I still can't lift my head. So here Job is saying, God, this is your doing. This is your plan. I'm not cursing you because I know you're God and I know that you're right. I just don't understand why I'm going through this. It doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain it to me? Because this is your plan. I don't know why. Chapter 11. So friend number three steps in, Zophar. And Zophar is offended by Job's words, so he gets offensive. Look at verses two and three. Zophar says, should this abundance of words go unanswered and such a talker be acquitted? Should your babbling put others to silence so that you can keep on ridiculing with no one to humiliate you? So he's offended, so he starts offending back. You're a babbler. And then verses 13 and 15, he says, as for you, Here's what you should do, Job, if you redirect your heart. If you repent, change your heart, Job, and spread out your hands to him in prayer. If there is iniquity in your hand, remove it, and don't allow injustice to dwell in your tents. Then you will hold your head high. So if you repent, Job, you'll be good. You know why you're still suffering? Because you're not repenting yet. You're not returning, you're not turning. Then Job answered, in verse 2 of chapter 12, sarcastically, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You guys are the wise guys. You have all the wisdom. And then verse 4, he grieves again. I'm a laughingstock to my friends by calling on God who answers me. The righteous and upright man is a laughingstock. I'm still calling on God and they're laughing at me because you trust God and you're suffering? Look at you. What a fool. This guy still trusts God and he's suffering? He's still believing in God? What a fool. So he's a laughingstock to others. Even though God ordains all suffering. That's in verse 9 that God ordains the suffering. In chapter 13, Job says, I just want to speak to God in verses two through five. I just want to talk to God. And then in chapter 13, look at verse 15. I just want to talk to God. And then verse 15, he says, even if he kills me, let me just talk to him. Even if he kills me, I'll still what? Hope in him. I'm not mad at God. I mean, I'm sort of mad because I'm hurting like crazy, but I am not, not, I'm not putting my hope elsewhere. I'm not rejecting God. I'm not going to curse God. I'm not going to some other religion or to some other theology or some other um, prophets or religious people and their teachings. I am staying right here. I'm going to keep hoping in the God, Yahweh, the God who made his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless all nations, no cursed, I'm going to keep my hope in him, even if he kills me. I will still defend my ways before him. And then Job goes a little bit too far in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 13. He says, how many iniquities and sins have I committed? Talking to God, reveal to me my transgression and sin. Why do you hide your face? Here it is. Job starts to go off track here a little bit more. Why do you hide your face and consider me your what? Enemy. Now he thinks that God is his enemy or that God is treating Job like an enemy. God, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why you're mad at me, but you're treating me like I'm your enemy. And so in chapter 14, he just longs to die again. That's round one. Round two begins in in chapter 15. But before we get to round two, and we'll we'll go a little bit faster in these next two rounds, think about this. Why are these friends attacking Job? Whenever whenever, um, we hear, Francis and I hear about um, accidents, car, you know, just different freak accidents that go on, you hear about them online, I immediately start thinking what I could do to prevent it if I was in that situation. Some of you run your mind runs that way right like okay if that's what happened then we need to you know there's this one swimming accident where a child died because you know too much water I guess and they are like it was like kind of a freak accident thing and like there were some symptoms and I was like trying to re- memorize all the symptoms whenever we go swimming so if, if I notice any of those in my kids I'm gonna make sure that I catch on to what that other parent might have missed and we, we when we when we see danger and problem in someone else we start trying to figure out how do I avoid that myself right if I hear about Cancer, I'm like, okay, what did they not do? What could I do to make sure that I handle it correctly? Um, That's what these guys are doing. Wait, Job, you don't have any sin that we're aware of. But if you didn't sin, and I'm not sinning, then if God could do that to you, then he could also do it to me. You had to have sinned, Job. Come on, admit it. There's some hidden sin somewhere. Don't Don't be messing around, Job. Stop it. Like, I know you're hiding something. So they want Job to have sinned, so that they could have their nice, neat. If I do well, God can't hurt me. He owes me. He owes me. He can't hurt me because I'm good and I'm not hiding anything. So, Job, you have to be hiding something. So they're they're pushing and they're pressing and they're searching because they want. They're scared themselves. At least that's the way I would. That's the way I would be. Okay. So go, round two. So the, here they go. Round two, coming back around to try to get Job to confess something. Eliphaz in chapter 15, he basically says, does Job alone know, alone know God's wisdom? We know it too. In, in verses 15, in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, here's, here's Eliphaz's problem. Actually, here's the theological problem. Do you listen in on the counsel of God or have a monopoly on wisdom? Now, this is kind, he's kind of close. Why is Job suffering? Was it in the counsel of God? Was it in heaven where a deal was made? Yes. yes he's kind of close. Job. So you're innocent. Why? How do you know you're innocent? Did you go up to the council? Did you hear about that meeting? Verse nine, what do you know that we don't? What do you understand that's not clear to us? Okay, here's his problem. Here's the problem for the counselor. Here's the problem for the friend comforter. He assumes that he knows everything that Job knows, right? He assumes he knows more than God would let him know. That's actually gonna be lesson number one, either three or four. That don't think you know more than you do. He says, What do you know that we don't know? We know everything. I mean, we got the whole Bible. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for, for, for teaching, for correcting, for reproving, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Everything God wants us to know, He's given us in His Bible. So you tell me what you know that I don't know. That's understanding theology, but misapplying that theology because he doesn't understand that part of your theology is that God can make deals and have counsels and plans that you can't understand. He's not factoring that into his theology. And that's a problem for Bible nerds. So Job responds in chapter 16. Job responds in chapter 16 and he says, though I'm innocent, um, in in verse 11 he says, God did, did this, in verse 12, I'm innocent. God did this even though I'm innocent, and I wish I had an advocate. There it is in, again, verse 21. I wish I had someone who might argue for a man with God just as anyone would a friend. I wish I would have someone, mediator. I just wish I had a mediator. So you, go, you, you move on to um, Bildad, and here comes Bildad in chapter 18, and he basically says he's irritated again, just like he was in round one. And look at verses 1 through 4. Look at how irritating he is. How long until you stop talking, Job? Show some sense, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account or a rock be removed from its place? Tell us, Job, why, why, why are you the only one? In verse five, he says, yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. So here's Job being extinguished. What is he calling Job in verse five? Wicked, right? And in verse 19, he says, here's a shot at Job again about Job's wickedness because what happens to the wicked in verse 19? The wicked, he has no children or descendants among his people, no survivor where he used to live. You know why your kids died, Job? Because you're wicked. You're hiding it. Just come out with it now. And then Job's reply in, verse, in chapter 19. Job responds in verse six. Understand, guys. Understand, my friends that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net, okay? I don't like that language, Job. Why are you saying that? He said, God has what? Wronged. wronged me. Is Job saying that God's sinning? Now, Job is gonna say God is righteous and we can't question his righteousness. But you know, when you're just hurting, you just say things, right? And you maybe partially believe it in some ways. On You, know, you kind of feel like a split personality. Like, I know God is good, but dang, this hurts. You know? God has wronged me here. This is wrong. And death, by the way, is wrong. But, but he's saying, God has wronged me here. He's going a little bit too far here. He's getting dangerously close to cursing God here. God has wronged me. God is unfair in the suffering. Verse seven, he says, I cry out violence, but I get what? No response. I call for help, but there's no justice. There's no fairness here. But still, even though there's no fairness, what does Job say in verse 25 of chapter 19? Even though I'm being wasted away, I know that my what? Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust on the earth, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. It sounds like resurrection. Not just in my soul will I see God, in my flesh, I'll have a resurrected body, and I'll see God. So kind of the first hints in the Old Testament at resurrection. But Job is saying, "Look God, you wronged me, but you're still my redeemer. <laughs> you see how good, like Job, he's not quite cursing God. He's hurting. He thinks God is doing wrong and it's unfair and unjust. And yet, God, you're still my redeemer. I still love you. I still trust you. I know you're going to raise me from the dead. I'm still going to see you in the end. I'm not turning my back on you. And then Zophar comes in in chapter 20. And he basically says, the wicked are humbled and exposed. And that's why you, you are being exposed. Because you are wicked. And then Job responds again, end of round two. He basically gives a riddle to them. Here's Job's challenge to them. Okay, You need to understand this challenge that that Job gives if you're going to have a good thinking on suffering. 21 verse 7. Job says, Riddle me this. Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming what? Powerful. Here's what Job's point is. I'm righteous and I'm suffering. There are wicked people who prosper in this world. Is that not true? Are there some people who get away with crimes? Actually, their whole life they never get caught by the authorities, or maybe they run the authorities in some countries, right? Or even here, yeah. So, so, so you could, you could, There's corruption, right? There's some, there's corruption, and they get away their whole lives. They live, they don't get any cancer, no, no bad health. They get money, they enjoy all of that. They, 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 they live a completely wicked life, and then, they, then they die a, a peaceful death. And what's Job? Here's Job's challenge to his friends. You guys are saying, I'm suffering because I'm wicked? Oh, what about this? What about all the wicked people who don't suffer? So if I'm wicked and God always, always punishes wicked people, why are there wicked people who get away without getting punished? Isn't that, isn't that a good challenge? That, that, that shows you that this world is complex. That God's judgments and God's design and what he ordains in this world is not so simple like, if you, if you suffer, it's because you're wicked. If you're not suffering, it's because you're good. It's not that easy all the time. Generally, that's true. Generally, that's true, but not not 100% in every situation. That's what Job is saying. That's the challenge, by the way, that the friends never answer. They never get back to that challenge. So let's move on. So so here, round three, I'm just going to summarize here. I'm not going to read verses. I'll just tell you. Eliphaz says, Job, you committed crimes, and you need to return to God. That's chapter 22. Chapter 23 and 24, Job says, if only I could plead my case to God, the wicked get away with stuff. And so he lays out the challenge again. The wicked are getting away with stuff. In chapter, then in 25, Bildad comes in and he says, everyone's a sinner, but he never answers Job's challenge. So you get two friends responding to Job, but they never answer the challenge. Why do the wicked suffer? I mean, sorry. Why do the wicked do wickedness and some of them get away with things? Why? Answer from the friends? No answer. Just, Job, I know you're sinning. I don't know, I don't know how to answer that question, but you must still be wicked. Um, And so Job responds finally in 27 to 31, and he says this, God is great, but your answers are useless. That's chapter 26. Chapter 27, I will not admit sin. That's verses 4 through 6. I will not admit that I've sinned because I don't know that I've sinned. And then he says, I know God will ultimately end the wicked, but they still do get away with stuff now. In chapter 28, which is really the theme of the book, but we don't have time to get into it now, wisdom only comes from God's revelation and fearing God. The key to wisdom is fearing God. And then in 29, he says, I used to be exalted um, in society. All my neighbors praise me. But now in chapter 30, I'm mocked. If God will only hear and answer my case. All right, so you have the back and forth there. You guys get kind of the gist of the conversation, back and forth? Here are two lessons, points three and four, in terms of how do you trust God when you're overwhelmed. Point three, trust God when you're overwhelmed by not just Blessing God, and not just, number two, by lamenting to God, but number three, trust God when you're overwhelmed by knowing that you don't know everything. By knowing that you don't know. The way you're gonna trust God when you're suffering is saying, I don't know everything. I don't know all of God's plans. And if you do that, that'll help you trust God because you have to admit your limitation in your knowledge. The friends didn't know that Job sinned, but they assumed he did. They thought they could know better because they used logical deduction and tradition and personal experience to say, therefore, Job must be sinning. Even though we don't know it for sure, it must be because of our calculations. No, you don't know that. It's better for you to not know it and admit that you don't know it. Even Job assumed he knew more than he did because he was saying that God what? Wronged him. That God was being unfair. Job, you're acting like you know more than you know. You don't know that. You don't know what went on in heaven. And so, like one of our church members often says, I do not know, therefore I cannot say for fear of telling an untruth. If you don't know, then you don't know. Just don't say. Job shouldn't have been saying, like, theologizing. These friends shouldn't have been theologizing. So that's number number three is trust God when you're overwhelmed by knowing that you don't know. Number four, trust God when you're overwhelmed by... Now, I have two different ways of saying this. Holding to your integrity or running to, your, running to integrity. Holding to integrity or running to integrity. Why do I say it two ways? Did Job sin? That, was Job sin what caused this suffering? Yes or no? No. no. Was Job a man of integrity? Yes. yes. And so when they're saying, come on, Job, admit it, admit it, admit it, he would not. He would hold to his integrity. Now, so when you suffer, you should hold to your integrity. But let's be honest. Sometimes we're suffering because we actually sinned, right? I mean, Job in this story didn't sin, but sometimes we suffer because we did sin. So when that's the case, we don't hold to our integrity. We don't have integrity. So instead, lesson number four is trust God when you're overwhelmed, not by holding to your integrity because you didn't have it, but running to integrity, by admitting you sinned, by repenting and confessing your sin and turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. So if you are suffering innocently, hold to your innocence. If you're suffering because you're guilty, repent from your sin and your guilt and trust in Christ afresh. But either way, the only way you're going to make it to the end through suffering in this broken world is by trusting God, by holding on to or running to integrity. I hope that makes sense to you. That's number four. Let's go to number five. So trust God uh, when you're overwhelmed by, by blessing God, by lamenting to God, by knowing that you don't know all that God knows and by holding to or running to your integrity. And number five, trust God when you're overwhelmed by listening to godly counsel. Chapters 32 to 37. By listening to godly counsel. Now, here, for the sake of time, I'm literally not gonna read any of it. I'm just gonna tell you what, what um Elihu said. Here's what Elihu said. Elihu is mad at the friends, and he's saying, You know what, you got, you know why I'm mad at you friends, you three guys? Even though I'm the youngest, I'm mad at you guys because you guys didn't confront Job's challenge. He gave you guys a challenge. Why do the wicked make it okay? Why do the wicked prosper? You didn't answer him. You just keep saying he sinned. And he's like, Job, I'm mad at you. You know why? Because you're saying God is unfair. You guys are all wrong. So Elihu who kind of comes in the middle, he's like, I'm the youngest dude here, so I didn't speak because I'm going to let my elders speak first. But after hearing all this foolishness from all you four, it's time for me to speak. So then he finally speaks, and he kind of gets the most right. He's not completely right. He doesn't know all that God knows, but he gets the most right. And so what's my point to you? Should you listen to your friends when you're suffering? Yeah, if it's godly counsel. Don't, don't go through suffering on your own. Your friends will still help. Now, do they know everything God knows? No. Are they gonna get some things wrong? Yes. Do they have only a partial picture? Yes. But can they say some true things that will help you trust God until God shows you why, he, why he's doing things? Yes. Yes. So lesson number five, Trust God when you're being overwhelmed by listening to godly counsel. So take your Bible, listen to people, and think things through. And lastly, and here's the big one, the main one, actually. If if I could only do one, this would be the main one, because God speaks now, right? Chapters 38 to 41, God enters the picture now. You had all these people talking and everyone giving their opinion, and now we get someone who has the right answer, God. So here's Job's challenge. Let me read Job's challenge, and then I'll read God's words, some of God's words here. Job's challenge is, why am I suffering pain if I didn't do anything wrong? What's God's answer? Here's God's answer. Chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, here's his answer. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? who get get ready to answer me like a man when I question you and you'll inform me. So your question to me is, why do the why am I suffering if I didn't do anything wrong? And God said, here's my answer. Why are you asking me these questions if you're so ignorant? Actually, let me ask you questions. So here's let's hear some of God's questions to Job. Verse 4 or verse 3. Verse 4, I'm sorry. Where were you when I established the earth? Where was Job? Nowhere. He didn't exist. Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed the dimensions of the universe? Certainly you know, Job. Who stretched the measuring line across it? What supports the foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning star sang together and all the angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind closed doors? when it burst forth from the womb. Who made the clouds? Job, surely you know those things. Verse 16, have you traveled to the sources of the sea? Have you seen the bottom, the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you know all this. Where does light come from? In verse 19, verse 25, Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain and clears the way for lightning? Verse 31, can you fasten the chains of Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? Talking about the constellation of stars. Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that the flood waters covers you? Can you send lightning bolts and they go? Do they report to you saying, here we are? What's the answer, yes or no? No, Job doesn't know anything. You don't know any of this. You don't know any of the answers to any of this question. You're completely failing this. You're getting zero on this test so far, right? You have no answers to any of this. That's true of all of us, right? Here we are in our suffering, feeling the pain, speaking out of pain and anger and frustration and brokenness. And God says, where were you when I created the universe? Surely you know because you're getting mad at me, right? So you got this. So he talks about nature. And then in chapter 39, again, we'll just skip over for the sake of time, but he talks about animals. Where were you when, and he talks about all these different animals, were you there, do you feed these animals? Do you see how these animals give birth? And he just goes after, you know, species after species, just talking about different things and showing Job that Job knows nothing. You don't know anything. You're ignorant. So go to chapter 40, verse 1. So then Job answers, okay, now Job speaks back to God. So he spoke back and forth with his friends, now he gets to speak back to God. And what's Job's answer? In chapter 40, well, first, let's go to verse two. God says to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? You're gonna correct me, Job? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Give me your answer, Job. What's your answer to all my questions? Here's Job's answer. Chapter 40, verse four. I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply. I've spoken twice, but I can add nothing. I don't have any answer. And then does God say, okay, now you get the point? Nope. God says in front of the next verse, verse 7, God answers to the whirlwind. Get ready and answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Put out your raging anger Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Imprison them in the grave. Then I will confess to you that you are right and your hand can deliver you. Can you really administer justice on this earth, Job? Are you going to kill every wicked person? Are you going to bring them to death? I will. Will you? If you can do it, if you can bring justice on this earth, then I'll admit and you can save yourself. Again, the answer is nothing. And then you get something really interesting here. He says in verse 15, look at behemoth. And he categorizes this land animal that looks like nothing we know. So people are like, is this a dinosaur? What is behemoth? It's probably best known as like a mixture of different land animals, just a composite um, figure. Go to 41, and I'll tell you my point here. Then he says, so I, he says, I rule over land animals, even this great animal behemoth, this great land animal. Then he goes to chapter 41, and then he talks about this great sea animal called Leviathan. And some people say this is a crocodile. Traditionally, the land animal was a hippopotamus and Leviathan was a crocodile. Uh, some people say it's a mythological creature from, other, from a Ugaritic mythology from the ancient Near East. Others say, this is just the author's literary creation to say all land animals in their most powerful, most powerful state and all, a sea animal in its most powerful state kind of has this composite super sea animal and super land animal. Only God can control the super animals. You can't, Job, so why are you talking back to me? That's the point. You can't control them, so why would you act like you can control the world or you know better than me? Now, there's a fourth option, and here's my belief, especially with Leviathan, that Leviathan's not a, merely a crocodile, but he's actually pointing to someone else. Look at verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 of chapter 41. His snorting flashes with light while his eyes are like rays of dawn. He's talking about this crocodile. Flaming torches shoot from his what? His mouth, fiery sparks fly out. Do you know any crocodiles that spit fire? Verse 20, what comes out of this crocodile's mouth? Smoke billows from his nostrils as from boiling pot or burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames pour out from his mouth. Do you know any sea animal that does this? Breathing fire? Putting coal, you know, burning coals with his breath? No. What is it referring to? Dragon. Dragon. Isaiah 27.1. Listen to Isaiah 27.1. I'll turn there quickly. And you'll see the symbolism that Isaiah picks up from Leviathan. Listen to Isaiah 27.1. On that day, the Lord, with relentless, with His relentless, large, strong sword, will bring judgment on Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the monster that is in the sea. What's Leviathan referring to? A dragon? A twisting serpent? Revelation actually pulls these two together in Revelation 12: a serpent who is the dragon, and his name is Satan his name is Satan God is saying can you beat Satan what was Job 40 what was was the beginning about who was the deal between Satan and God right this isn't even about you Job can you control Satan can you 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 can't control nature you don't know creation you don't know time you don't know where animals are born you don't know land animals you don't know sea animals you can't beat Satan you got nothing on Satan Satan has been battling humanity from the beginning. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden, for Satan's fall, he battled God. At the fall, he tried to battle God with Adam and Eve. With Cain and Abel, he tried to battle God. With Noah and all the humans, he tried to battle God. With Abraham, he tried to battle God. When Israel was in Egypt, Satan tried to battle God. When Israel was in the wilderness, Satan tempted the Israelites in the wilderness to battle God. When they were in the land, Satan tempted them, and even David in the land, to get them out of the land. When they're in exile, Satan tried to extinguish them. Read the book of Esther. Because he wanted to battle God. Then Jesus comes. Does Satan take a break when Jesus comes? No. He goes all after Satan, right? I mean, Satan goes all after Jesus in the temptation and on the cross. And then when Jesus ascends, does Satan take a break then and leave the church alone? No. He starts battling against the church and tempting the church and fighting against the church until the final battle, when God finally throws Satan into the pit and then after a thousand years comes back and then finally destroys Satan and puts him in the lake of fire, Satan will be battling who? God. This isn't about you, Job. You can't handle this fight. You just stay there and trust me. I will defeat Leviathan. And you're part of the plan of defeating Leviathan. In your trial, in your pain, in your being overwhelmed, there is a cosmic battle going on. And you're part of it. And your job, Job's job, is to trust God, Amen. because these things are beyond our understanding. So Christian, to summarize, bless God, lament to God, run and hold to your integrity, admit your limited knowledge, listen to truth from others, and humble yourself. That's number six, humble yourself before the greatness of God, and humble yourself before the plan of God. Church family, Let's help each other endure suffering by pointing others to God's greatness because we don't have all the answers. Let's not pretend as fellow church members that we have all the answers. Let's just tell our brothers and sisters, brother, I don't know. I'm praying for you, I love you. I'm here, how can I help? You know, let me point, God is great. I don't have all the answers, but I know he's great. I know, I know that in the end, this is gonna be okay. I don't know how, but it will be. Your presence is important and speaking less is better than speaking more. For the non-Christian, you might say, you might ask this question, this is why I can't believe in Christianity. Because why does, why does God allow evil in the world? If God is so good and so powerful, why does he allow evil? To make deals with Satan? He just uses chess pieces to, prove, to puff himself up? Is that what God does? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're not Christian, that's your question. Why is there suffering in the world? I'll, let me admit this. Christians have a true but incomplete answer to the problem of evil. Our answer is incomplete. Because God doesn't give us the specific reasons for every suffering. So we can't give you a complete answer for your specific suffering but let me ask you this non-Christian friend what is your answer to why there's suffering in the world I mean we have an answer we don't have a complete answer because God doesn't give us the complete answer but we have a true answer but if you're not a Christian you reject the Bible and you reject Jesus why do you think suffering is going on because whether you believe in God or not there is suffering right so you have to answer the question too why is there suffering in the world we know we as Christians know that suffering isn't meaningless why do we know that Because we know that God has a plan, a good plan for his people. Not only that, we know that God is not arbitrary or indifferent, he's not just up in heaven playing chess and using us as chess pieces as if he doesn't know our pain. How do we know that God is not indifferent? How do we know God knows our pain? Because he came into this mess. He became a man and he entered this world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and he suffered. He suffered, he was persecuted, he was mocked. He was killed. He lost friends who died. And he never did anything wrong. He's the truly innocent person, right? Job was still a sinner. He still messes up. Jesus never did. And yet he still suffers and dies for our sins and rises from the dead. So we know that we have a God who cares about our suffering. He can sympathize with our suffering. So if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to go to the God who understands and gives meaning to your suffering, even when he doesn't give you all the answers. He gives you something better than all the answers. He gives you Jesus. He gives you his son who died for you, sympathizes with you, and rose for you if you'll repent from your sins and trust in him. You'll be one with him and you will have hope forever. We see the disorder of an innocent person. Most of all, uh, Jesus Christ experienced it more than anyone else at the cross. The greatest disorder in the world to the greatest innocent person, was broken. So if you're not a Christian, go to this one whose body was broken for you if you will trust in him. Jesus was broken, and yet in this brokenness, isn't God's higher order and wisdom and good designed in the cross? I mean, even though Jesus suffered the greatest brokenness, isn't God's wisdom in the cross? Isn't his goodness in the cross? Isn't his power in the cross? Isn't God's goodness, power, and wisdom in suffering? Could it also be in your suffering? Yeah. This has been spe- The cross has been specifically revealed to you so that when you go through suffering, you have something more than Job. You have the book of Job, and you have Jesus Christ. Amen. This is evidence that God has revealed wisdom to you to get you through the tough times. Brothers and sisters, you have a happy ending, even though I don't know how to answer the sufferings you're going through right now. What happened to Job? In the end, Job was restored, like I said. He had a happy ending. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, Here's the main thing I would encourage you to do. Humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before the greatness of who God is and what his plan is that you cannot fully understand. Recognize that it's beyond your, un- your understanding, yet God is still utterly trustworthy. If you will not humble yourselves and trust God, your suffering will be compounded by sin and its isolating consequences. Your knowledge will turn against you with untrue thoughts, mixed with true thoughts, and Satan will deceive you through that. And your faith might fail. But if you succeed, if you humble yourself in your trials and trust God when you don't understand everything, you'll endure to the end, you'll draw near to God, and you'll reap the eternal reward and the happy ending when Christ returns. Let me end by quoting the song that we sang. We sang. I want this song to kind of be a song that you meditate on and take this as, a, as kind of maybe for your devotions this week as you think about suffering. I'm just going to read the verses that we sang already from Psalm, um, Hymn 73 and then I'll pray. God moves, now think about this in light of Job, hymn 73, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Isn't that sweet? You're scared of the clouds, but they're blessings, but they're clouds. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he eventually will make it plain. Father, help us to trust you as you interpret to us our suffering, maybe not in this life, but certainly in the resurrection to come. Help us to trust you when we are overwhelmed because you are great. So we humble ourselves before you. We trust you. We will lament to you. But keep us, hold us fast, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.